Ah, sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Genocide. If that's not a word to get people's attention, I don't know what is. And uh, in today's world, it should come as no surprise that the U.S. Congress managed to set aside their inertia and obstructionism to finally agree to call what's happening in Iraq and Syria with ISIS, to call it by its proper name, genocide. Uh, our guest today to talk about this recent resolution, Tina Ramirez, uh, founder and director of hardwiredglobal.org. Tina, welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friend. Thank you, Alan. It's nice to be with you. <laughs> and I know that, uh, that your organization, you've been one to advocate for this resolution. Tell us about how it came about. Yeah. Well, it's really very exciting. Not only did Congress last week recognize that this was genocide, but the president finally made a statement recognizing that the situation in Iraq and Syria is genocide as well, as it relates to the Christians, the Yazidis, and the Shia Muslims that are being attacked by ISIS. And this was really significant. The, uh, the impetus was really a trip that I took to Iraq about a year and a half ago, right when this started. You know, as you know, ISIS forced all the Christians and other minority communities to evacuate Mosul and the Nineveh Plains um, in June, July, August of 2014. And then they began to attack the Yazidis. And when they attacked the Yazidis, um, they didn't even give them the option that they had given the Christians of, you can convert or you can be killed, um, or you can pay a tax, is what they gave some Christians the option to do. They just literally um, took all of the Yazidis into a building, uh, separated the men from the young women, and just just killed all the men and put them in a mass grave with the older women. And the young children and women they took and they have sexually enslaved and been selling for the last year and a half. 5,000 were enslaved and 2,000 have escaped. So 3,000 still remain in captivity. So this is something that about a year and a half ago when I went to Iraq, I was meeting these Yazidis and Christians and others and hearing their stories, which are just horrific. And I met Vian Dakil, the member of parliament in the, the Iraqi parliament, the Yazidi, that had been crying out for somebody to do something when her Yazidi people were trying to escape. They were stuck on a mountain, and many of them starved and were killed um, when they were trying to escape. And she pleaded to the international community for help. She tried to call it genocide, and she was trying to uh, mobilize a movement in the Iraqi parliament for that, but no one seemed to care. And still, the Iraqi government hasn't declared that it's genocide. So after that trip, on my way back home, I spoke with the European Parliament, with the British Parliament, and with members of the Council of Europe, and since then, and then the U.S. Congress. And since then, each one of those different groups have been working to propose resolutions to declare that it's genocide. And about, um, about a year ago, Congressman Trent Franks began to work on a resolution to declare that it's genocide. And that was really the impetus, was Van Dekiel came to the United States then and began to meet with members of Congress and ask them to help her. 
So Congressman Franks began to work on a resolution. In the end, it was Congressman Fortenberry that introduced it. And um, Congressman Franks introduced a different resolution that I'll tell you about in a minute. But that was the impetus. And it, it was a very hard battle, not just to get it passed through Congress, but to get the president uh, to do something to actually say, yes, this is genocide. Why is it so difficult just to call <laughs> genocide by its right name? Well, there are a couple of factors, but I think that the biggest one is just political will. When you, under the um, the genocide there's the Genocide Convention and Treaty, which the U.S. has signed, once you actually recognize that genocide is occurring, you have not only a moral but a legal obligation to do something to stop it. And unfortunately, there is very little legal or political will in, uh, I'm sorry, um, moral, political, legal will within the United States and around the world to do something. And sadly, um, in the United States, President Obama's administration, when I met with them, said that they thought because the Christians had an option of paying a tax <laughs> to be allowed to be Christians and remain in wherever cities they were that I controlled, that that meant that they weren't, that there was no intent to destroy them is necessary for genocide, which is totally ridiculous. I mean, there, and there, and the truth was that there really wasn't an option. Christians, um, they had no option to, to pay a tax, really. In the end, ISIS forced them to convert if they stayed or killed them or enslaved them. And um, so... So this was essentially an excuse yeah. uh, not to be put in, in a moral or legal bind right. as far as what sort of response. You know, it's interesting, just, I mean, just this morning, driving to the studio... Uh, was listening to the reports of the recent terrorist attacks in in Belgium right. this morning, and and I have to wonder whether the attacks in France last year and then these attacks, if this is going to uh, motivate the European Union and uh, its allies here in the United States to actually do more uh, to try to. Uh, deal with ISIS? Yeah, the reality is that we cannot ignore religious oppression in the form of ISIS or anything else anymore. And if we do so, it would be at our own peril. There are 300 Americans now that have joined ISIS. There are hundreds from all over Europe that have joined them. And um, when I first started working on this issue uh, with Congress, there were, there were well, by in one year ago, there were only 180. So they're doubling their number of the United States. Um, militants that are going over there to fight with them. This is something that is at our front door. We, we simply can't ignore. And many of those people we may not know uh, that are being radicalized, and they could be like the San Bernardino attackers. You know, So it is something that we need to take seriously because people are being radicalized. And joining a group that is so inhumane, it, it's unlike anything we've seen in a very long time, um, not just the inhumanity, but their global ambitions that go alongside of that. And so it is something that that has to be taken seriously. And I hope that through these resolutions, these recognitions, that the U.S. and the international community will come together to take action. So the thing is, the genocide resolution, you know, it's a good first step, but it's just a first step. And it's unfortunate that it took a year and a half to get to just this first step. The more important step is a resolution that Congressman Franks introduced, which is House Resolution 447. And uh, Senator Ron Johnson 
introduced a similar resolution in the Senate that has passed already. Um, his Senator Johnson's resolution called for prosecuting members of ISIS that have left the United States. Congressman Frank's resolution, House Resolution 447, goes further and calls on the president to actually go to the United Nations, call for a vote in the UN Security Council to actually put peace to these crimes that ISIS is committing to do several things, one of which would be to create sanctions against ISIS. Right now, ISIS is still selling oil out of the areas they control in Syria and Iraq. Um, they have access to their bank accounts. They are traveling freely. And whether they're Americans or anyone else, that must stop. They, I mean, they're doing all this, and it is enabling them to enslave women and children. There are still a few Christian women and even one child who is being held by ISIS. Um, it, it's just. Are you, are you saying they're using Western banks, European banks, et cetera, for their finances? Well, absolutely, because if there are 300 Americans that have joined ISIS, they still have U.S. bank accounts that are fueling their ability to do whatever they're doing. Right. So until they're found and prosecuted, then they're still able to, they're at large. I mean, there's, there's nothing, we're not stopping them. So in September of last year, Hardwired brought a young girl named um, Bozzi, that's her pseudonym, to the United States. And there's an interview on CNN with Christiana Amapur that talks about how she was enslaved by an American who bought her for $40 after she'd been, she is a young Yazidi girl, and was enslaved for five months and finally escaped and lived to tell it. Her brother was shot and left to die in a mass grave with his other brothers, his mother and father. He survived and was able to walk, run out to get to get help. And so the two of them have survived. Those mass graves have been uncovered now, where they found thousands of bodies, and yet they're not being protected by even the Kurdish government. And so all of the evidence, even prosecute those people that are responsible for genocide, is being destroyed right now. So we're working with Congressman Frank and the State Department and the Kurdish government to try to get those grave sites protected so we can actually have evidence to prosecute all of those responsible for these atrocities, but recognizing as genocide is just the first step. The next step needs to be calling for a UN Security Council resolution that actually puts peace to it. And it doesn't have to be military action under the UN Security Council, but of, of course, we're never going to stop ISIS without that. Um, but they could, the UN Security Council could call for sanctions. It could freeze assets. It could put names on um, on travel on travel bans on Interpol, and they could also set up a peacekeeping force or authorize a peacekeeping force, let's say, in the minority-run areas like where the Yazidis are from and the Nineveh Plains where the Christians and the other minorities are from, that would enable them to return once those areas are regained from ISIS and um, rebuild their lives in peace and security. So, and so Tina, let me, let me break in here because what I'm, I'm hearing you talk about what I would characterize as a number of containment measures that make a lot of sense, um, but ultimately are not going to end the crisis that ISIS represents. Um, first of all, is that a fair um, characterization? No, they absolutely, what they do is they serve two purposes. One is a deterrent, because if no one has been prosecuted, then everyone, the numbers have doubled in the last year of Americans who have gone to fight with ISIS. There's nothing deterring them. The the young man that enslaved this young woman, Bazi, he has a wife, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed wife, and two children living somewhere in America that are one and two years old, or I guess two and three years old at this point. 
that are at large. And they, there's no way that, these, that this family has no idea what the, that man has done by joining ISIS. They are complicit, and they need to be held to account for that. And if any other American is complicit, they need to be held to account. If anyone else in the world, see, there's no deterrent right now. So people are joining them as though this is a fun, adventurous caliphate, and they're living out the most egregious fantasies that anything that they want to do to harm other people, it's horrible, and no one's stopping them. But secondly, they have all of the financial resources to do it because we haven't cut off their ability to. So if we could freeze them out by with sanctions and other means, they wouldn't be continuing these things. You see, there's, there is a military option, but there's a non-military option that we presented to President Obama because we know he's a pacifist, and yet he's not doing anything. He's not taking seriously. So he wasn't even going to declare it genocide until he received so much pressure around the world and um, from a lot of groups in the United States. But, you know, there's no reason that this genocide has continued for so long and that that we're not doing anything to really stop it. And it's absolutely possible to stop it. Well, and I think part of the message here that I'm hearing from you is the importance of the American people putting pressure on our elected officials. Absolutely. That even if they have reasons to be reluctant to act, they will respond to pressure. Yeah, I mean, I just think of this young girl who's probably about five or six years old that was taken captive by ISIS, a young Christian girl. And I think, you know, that could be our daughter. I can't imagine for every American who's thinking, these, you know, these are Americans that have gone to commit these atrocities. And we, we do have a responsibility and there's no reason that we're not doing something. We, we all have a voice and we need to use it. So. And listener, you have a responsibility too. We're out of time. Our guest today, Tina Ramirez, director of hardwiredglobal.org. Check it out on the web, hardwiredglobal.org. And as we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help those suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. Freedom's Ring.